0: Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Today, I'll be speaking with Amitabh Chandra about the future of America's healthcare system. Amitabh is the John H. Macon Visiting Scholar here at AEI, where his work focuses on the economics of healthcare policy. In addition, he's a professor at both Harvard Business School and the Director of Healthcare Policy Research at the Harvard Kennedy School. He is also a member of the Congressional Budget Office's Panel of Health Advisors and a Research Associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Amitabh, welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to be here, Jim. Now, what I would like is a healthcare reform or a series of healthcare reforms that would reduce spending and improve healthcare outcomes for the American people. Is that a hard thing to do? Is that an impossible thing to do? Do we know how to do it, but we just don't have the will? Are any of those three things true?
1: (laughs) I'd add one more thing. I think it's the wrong goal, actually.
0: Oh, that's terrible, I'm sorry.
1: I don't think that it's actually right to say, we want to reduce the healthcare spending part. We might want to, there's a lot of evidence that there are, that we could achieve the same outcomes but spend less if we spent it more effectively. I think you're right about that. But I think that if you think about a lot of the work that we need to do, that work requires us to spend more. So for example, if people are worried about uninsurance, to take on an insurance, we're gonna to have to spend more. If people say, well, we really need to be doing much more care coordination, well, that requires us to spend more. If people say we need more telemedicine, that requires us to spend more. So again, like I think there's a lot of things that we can do to improve healthcare. Those things will actually require us to spend more. That's not to say that there isn't waste in the system, but it all comes down to: um, Can we figure out where that waste is, and can we remove it? As opposed to having a conversation on, you know, gee, how do we make spending eighteen percent of GDP on healthcare, seventeen percent of spending on of GDP on healthcare? I don't think we know how to do that, and I also don't think it's a desirable goal. I
0: think there's the I think there's the perception that we spend, you said, you know, eighteen percent of GDP on healthcare, and other countries spend a smaller share and therefore the difference uh between those two is waste of some sort and not only is it waste but we're not getting as good at outcomes so there should be a lot of so there so so we should be able to get if we could if we just did if we just organize our system smarter more like this country or that country we could reduce that spending as a share of GDP to that other, to, to their level and get the supposedly better outcomes that they generate. I mean, I think there is a, I think that's a, a view that's out there.
1: I think I agree with you in that that view is out there. And I think um, people like you and me should be working hard to acknowledge the kernels of truth in that view but also not to over amplify it because large parts of that view I think are just entirely incorrect. Let me start with the four reasons why I think it's incorrect. The first is that one reason we spend more, this is not the only reason, but one reason we spend more is at least in the pharmaceutical part of things, the rest of the world is spending too little. The rest of the world is benefiting from American innovation. If you take a rich country, large country like Australia, Australia spends, you know, the the prescription drug market in Australia is about 5% what it is in the United States. The Australian GDP is not 5% of American GDP. It's a lot larger than 5% of American GDP. So the fact that the Australians spend about you know, their prescription drug market is only 5% of ours is giving us an indication for what a good deal they're getting by free riding on innovation that we're producing. By the way, I don't have a problem with the free riding. I'm just pointing out that that's one reason that the Australians, the Canadians, the British land up spending less. Okay, that's one, one piece of this. The second is many of these countries are actually poorer than the United States. That might not be obvious to travelers who are landing in Heathrow Airport and spending time in London. But let's just be very clear that American incomes are about 25% higher than incomes in the UK. 25% higher is a big, big number. And so we know that as people get richer, we spend more on healthcare. So, you know, if you if you think that that elasticity is even 1%, I happen to think it's larger than that. You know, you will get, if, if we're 25% richer, you will get 25% more healthcare spending in the US just by virtue of higher incomes. That's not more waste, that's just higher incomes. Second, I think it's very easy to say their healthcare system gets you the same outcomes as our healthcare system. It might but it also might not let's just be very clear if you go to an nhs hospital you will be in a ward right and i don't know what the size of these wards are but wards tend to have 20 25 patients in them in the us if you go to any hospital you will not be in a ward you probably will have a private or semi private room if 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 i get my tumor imaged by um, A hospital in the United States. Maybe they're using a two or three Tesla MRI machine. Maybe in the UK they're using a 0.5 Tesla machine. These very small differences in attributes can generate very large differences in prices. Now, again, just to be very clear, I'm not arguing that our system is better. Maybe we don't need a three Tesla machine. But to the extent that people want a three Tesla machine in the United States, they're going to have to spend a lot more. And there's really no way to get UK healthcare without losing the three Tesla machine. I think the third reason I, I really take issue with a lot of these comparisons across countries is that you know, knowing whether the prices are too high in the US hinges on understanding whether the forces that determine these prices um, would result in Desirable or undesirable changes in the quality of care that's, that's delivered. So, let me explain by that. Yeah. A lot of healthcare spending is on labor. Something like 60% of healthcare spending is on labor. And these wages, these labor wages, depend on forces outside the healthcare system, such as the wages that aspiring physicians would be paid if they chose to become lawyers instead. So we don't really know how to whack the salaries of doctors in the United States without completely affecting who goes into medicine in the United States. Another way to think about this is, when you compare the wage distribution in Canada to the wage distribution in the United States, lawyers, electrical engineers, computer scientists, all those people are also earning less money in Canada. (laughs) So, some one reason why American healthcare is expensive is because everything is expensive in the United States. It's not a unique problem to healthcare itself. So at the end of the day, I come back to, to where I started. If we're interested in increasing the efficiency of American healthcare, we should constantly be asking whether the health outcomes we get are too high or too low relative to how much was spent to achieve them which is very different than saying, gee, you know, let's figure out what, you know, let's, let's adopt these pieces from the UK. Let's not adopt those other pieces from the UK. Let's adopt these pieces from Canada, but somehow not adopt these other pieces from Canada. Canada, for example, doesn't really have very generous prescription drug insurance coverage. If you were a spinal muscular atrophy patient in Canada, most of them would not have coverage for Zolgensma. So it's impossible to adopt just some pieces of the Canadian system without also saying no to all Gensma. So I think that we have to improve the honesty of this conversation if we really are going to engage with the cross-national literature.
0: OK. Well, I have a couple questions based on what you just said. One, why don't you have a problem with other countries free riding on our innovation and our high drug prices, which I, which are funding that innovation? We're a rich country, we like the
1: innovation, we should be willing to pay for that innovation. If other countries don't like the innovation and are willing to free ride off of it, I don't, I don't really have a problem. My sense is, Jim, other countries free ride off a lot of things that the United States produces. They probably free ride off of our entire industry, uh, movie industry. They probably free ride off of our tech industry. I don't really have a problem with that. I like our movies. I like my latest kind of technology on my wrist. I don't really have a problem with the fact that other countries get these technologies
0: for a lower price. Now, I feel and the same way. About and, it. And if you did care about it, what would if you did care about that, what would you do about it?
1: Well, you'd have to kind of be willing to give it up a little bit in the United States because maybe you you know, people who care about it are essentially saying I care more about the free riding than having that service in the first place. And so if you care more about the free-riding than having the service in the first place, then then maybe what you want to do is you want to see prices go up in those other countries. One way you can make prices go up in those other countries is to force our manufacturers to charge the same price here as they charge there, right? That might be one way to do it. My guess is what that'll force manufacturers to do is to mostly increase prices in other countries. Let me give you an example from prescription Mm -hmm. drugs. The Australian drug market, as I said, was 5% of the American drug market. And people will say, well, that's really unfair. You know, those Australians are free riding. Yeah. One way you could get around that is to say, "G Australia or G manufacturers, you have to charge the same prices in Australia as you do in the United States. Now, if we put that, if we made that a rule, right, if we could make that a law for all American manufacturers, what would happen? I think the common intuition is somehow American prices would fall and prices in in Australia would go up. I think there's some truth to this. But but the first thing that would happen is manufacturers would say, geez, this market is only 5% of the American market. Let's not enter the Australian market at all. We just won't sell in Australia. We'll keep American prices exactly where they are, and we won't sell in Australia. Now, second, if you force them, force manufacturers to sell in Australia, but at the same price as in the United States, the Australians would get charged the U.S. price. But very little would happen to prices in America, simply because, you know, our market is, is almost, you know, it's, it's almost double the size of the Australian market. And so Australians would pay a lot. And you know you wouldn't really see a price concession in the United States market. Maybe prices would come down a half percent or quarter percent or something like that. So people if will I feel go very off. good. People will right. feel very good. But basically, these policies will result in denying Australians coverage. And you know, my own view is I'm okay with the Australians having right. coverage uh, for if drugs that built for the American market. Like I'm okay with that.
0: Just like I they're to not I buy, be okay sorry. with
1: my drinking their fosters.
0: Right, right, for sure. Uh, if i go to a hospital i don't want to be an award and if i go to a hospital i don't want to use technology from 1997 i want to use technology uh from like last year and i want I, you know that's that's what i want um and probably be very hard to convince me or many other americans to want to want some, something else but you know sort of that aside are we you know are we getting Better outcomes because we aren't in wards and we're using this, we're using the latest technology rather than the technology from three, four, or five iterations ago. And if we're not, is that because of those reasons or is it because of other things? I don't know, maybe, you know, we're not, we're, we have unhealthy habits in the United States. I mean, what's, what is driving, if there's an outcome difference, what's driving that difference?
1: I am not of the view that the extra, quality that we might be getting in the form of, say, a higher resolution Tesla image automatically results in better health outcomes. I'm not of that view at all. I think it provides some sort of reassurance to patients. So there's some psychic benefit that may not be a clinical outcome that patients receive when they're seen in a private ward or they have better quality food. I'm. And I think that those things are important to patients, but they're quite different than clinical outcomes, right? So let me just start with that observation, Mm -hmm. which is why it's what I think we should be pushing for in the United States is much more choice. I think we want health plans to essentially offer the UK system or the Canadian system, right? And let the folks who want that select into that I think that's a much better system than forcing everyone to consume 2019 healthcare at 2019 prices. I mean, some Americans might say, you know, I'm okay consuming 2010 healthcare. Why don't you have a plan that offers 2010 healthcare? Because we know 2010 healthcare, Jim, is so much cheaper than 2020 healthcare. As long as we're able to do the risk adjustment properly, right? that kind of choice and competition could actually drive a lot of value could result in larger paychecks for employees who really don't want the 3 Tesla plan so while i came out just like you advocating for the 3 Tesla i don't want yeah. to straitjacket patients into that plan just like i don't want to put everyone into the uk plan i think that's a bad answer because some people are going to want you know higher quality higher amenity healthcare Similarly, some people are not going to want higher quality, higher amenity healthcare. Medicaid, for example, might not want that. You know, Medicaid might want to, you know, say we don't, we want, we want a very narrow network at a handful of hospitals in the city of Boston, in the city of Washington D.C. We're okay with that because it allows us to save 20%. I don't think we should force Medicaid to cover everything everywhere. And I think now to just build on where you were going with this, yeah. I got distracted. Was You know, if you ask where the outcome difference is coming from, the outcome differences are probably coming from what I call pre-healthcare factors. You know, long history of uh, racism and slavery um, and segregation in healthcare in the United States, long history of trust problems in the United States, Uh, bad habits probably from not walking, from lifestyle. Uh, we should not be laying the blame for those problems at the door of today's healthcare system. I think those are real problems. I don't think we've overcome all of them, um, and I think it's very unfair to judge the healthcare today's healthcare system by the long shadow of those problems.
0: This it's a uh, it's a little bit of a, a, a diversion, but since it popped in my head, our, we, hear, we always hear about sort of, you know escalating healthcare costs are costs in these other countries, even though they currently may spend a smaller share of GDP than the United States, at least in recent decades, are, are, are costs also going up slower there than they, than they are here?
1: Yeah, they are going up a little slower there, Jim, but it's certainly true that if you look at per capita healthcare spending in the UK today, It's what we had probably 10 years ago when we thought we had a spending problem. So to all the people who think that the NICE and the UK and the Europeans have figured it out, it's not possible to use their numbers. When we had their numbers, we were saying that we had a spending problem. (laughs) So I think your point is exactly right. We do spend less than them in terms of the level of spending. We have a slightly higher growth rate, but to your point, it's absolutely true that their growth rate is quite high. And when you talk to leaders in these countries, they view their healthcare spending trajectory as quote unquote, unsustainable.
0: How do we get to the sort of system you mentioned where there's more choice, I can choose to pay for either 2010 healthcare or 1995 healthcare. Would it be hard to move to that from our current system or might we transition fairly easily?
1: My sense is as long as we don't try to straitjacket everybody into the same plan, we will be okay with moving towards a system where employees, uh, patients, Medicare Advantage enrollees, Medicaid enrollees have more choice. In fact, I would think that some of the ideas in the Affordable Care Act like the exchanges that it created, the marketplaces that it created, could provide a chassis for exactly that kind of competition. If I'm trying to book a ticket, an air ticket from Boston to Orlando, I have a lot of choice, right? Like I can can fly a variety of different carriers, including some low discount carriers that are just as safe, but they're much cheaper because they're maybe a little bit less reliable. They're a little bit less likely to show up on time. Similarly, I mean, you could think about these exchanges as being exchanges where you're buying health insurance. It's a regulated market, so we're not saying it's a free-for-all. You know, you might have to sort of show that the the network meets some minimal adequacy standards, that the drug formulary doesn't become a 1970s drug formulary. So again, we will have to have some regulation on this marketplace, but there's no reason to think why that marketplace... Could not offer essentially an NHS-like, uh, you know, coverage option, or for people like me and you, you know, a- an option which you know caters to uh, uh, patient preferences for very high-tech healthcare. Which, just to be very clear. Would be extremely, extremely expensive, but there are right.
0: people who would be willing to pay for that. They're not necessarily rich
1: people; they're just people who kind of believe in healthcare,
0: believe in doctors, and believe in new medical technology. I, I believe in all that. Yeah, I, exactly. So for you, I want, I want twenty, <laughs> I want twenty thirty healthcare today. I don't want, I don't want twenty. Yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> and
1: and I think you know, let's not
0: forget one key
1: benefit of this idea, Jim. The benefit is not just that we are allowing people to choose the healthcare that best fits their paycheck and their risk profile and their risk preferences. It's that as long as you have a system that's willing to pay for 2030 healthcare, that 2030 healthcare ultimately goes generic. It ultimately becomes the healthcare that everybody else receives. We have to have a system that is willing to pay for medical innovation. I'm okay, going back to my point about free riding, with really wealthy people who love 2030 healthcare subsidizing it for the rest of the world, subsidizing it for other Americans so that those other people get it at some point. They might be free riding in the sense that they get it even though they didn't pay for it. I'm totally fine with that. So do we
0: need to... Derate. You talk about the you know these insurance exchanges that you know came about under Obamacare. Do, we, do those exchange- like what's preventing this from happening? Do those, do those exchanges need to be deregulated? And what what would be the critis- criticism from someone who is, uh, or, or what would be the common, Let's say I don't know if you want to say center left, or let's say someone who's from the uh, you know a Bernie Sanders healthcare advisor or a Joe Biden healthcare advisor, what would be their criticism of, of the kind of choice that you're talking about?
1: I think, that, I think it's easier to understand this question from the perspective of the Medicare for all advocates, right? They want Medicare for all. And so what is Medicare for all? It's a single plan. But the problem with Medicare for all is if you put us all into Medicare, and government is paying the hospitals and the doctors, government will have unbelievable pricing power in the healthcare marketplace. Now the advocates will say, this is great. It will use that unbelievable pricing power to lower the prices. It will, but guess what? The world in its history has never met a moderate monopsonist. So government will use its pricing power to set prices that are below competitive levels, this is a problem because it will shut down innovation completely. It'll, it'll, you know, and, and, and if you shut down innovation completely, you don't get this world in which tomorrow's healthcare is actually better than today's healthcare. And when I say innovation, I don't just mean pharmaceutical innovation. I'm talking about all the quiet innovation that happens every day in doctors' offices and inside hospitals. Right. And so we want a system where government doesn't really have that incredible pricing power. It's still possible for government to have a very big role in healthcare as a payer, but we don't want it to be so big that it's the only payer. Because when it becomes the only payer, it lands up setting these, you know, subcompetitive level prices, which really discourage innovation. I mean, just to make it very concrete. If you have a doctor who's earning right now in a competitive market, Say $20,0, dollars a year, right? Government could come along and say, you know what? I'm just gonna pay you $150. Where are you gonna go? Right? But in the long run, fewer and fewer people are going to be drawn to medicine if they're getting paid $150 instead of $250. That was the market wage. You can see this story play out in every area of medicine, which is why Medicare for All while it might certainly provide incredible short-run relief to a lot of people, and while there's many problems with American uh, healthcare, is a recipe. It's a recipe for squeezing innovation and, and essentially guaranteeing that in 2030, healthcare will look like 2020 healthcare. In fact, in 2030, you might even get 2010 healthcare, and you would never know it. That's the worst part of it. You would never know it because there isn't like a private market to compare one's outcomes to.
0: Do Medicare for all advocates acknowledge this sort of innovation downside? No, it's just ignored, Uh, it's just ignored. It's effectively,
1: you know, it's sort of like, I think they sort of have this view that innovation is something that comes out of a petri dish, right? You go on vacation, you're like an Alexander Fleming, you come back and suddenly
0: you've discovered penicillin. Right. So I think if that's just kind of, it happens, it's unpredictable. You can't guide it. It's just a bolt from the blue. Right.
1: And there's certainly aspects of that. Let's just be clear. I think the the chance aspect is a non-trivial aspect of the basic science discovery. Absolutely. But what I'm talking about is to take the basic science to bedside, right? To build a better ventilator, to build a COVID-19 vaccine takes more than just these chance discoveries. It takes billions and billions of dollars coming from financial markets to make the investment. Why are financial markets making that investment? It's not because <laughs> it's not because they they just sort of love healthcare. It's because they want to make profit. They're sort of indifferent between making profit off of you know new cancer therapies as they are making a, you know running and launching a new scooter company. So as long as there's greater incentives for them to go into healthcare, they'll go into healthcare. But if we remove those incentives because they're facing government payers, they'll go invest in other sectors. They'll go invest in WeWork and you know other crackpot ideas like that. Um,
0: uh, there seems to be all this energy around this Medicare for All idea, which is, I don't know, maybe where the Democratic Party is moving. But I don't hear nearly as much from the center-right when it comes to alternatives. Is that because the alternative is something like Obamacare we have exchanges and subsidies to help people buy private insurance. Is that the alternative and folks on the right just don't want to acknowledge it?
1: Yeah, I think, um, look, let's just start with Medicare for all. Um, it's a slogan. It's, it's really not much more than that. A lot of the hard work that, that that is required to make Medicare for all a concrete policy proposal has just not been done the Medicare for All proposals do not grapple with any of the central economic trade-offs that that require attention for Medicare for All to be successful. Um, And it's a a theme that runs through a lot of these proposals to reform Medicare, including the public option. I think that it's, um, I think one thing that I certainly think is that there's some combination of kind of wanting political expediency and there's also uncertainty about the ma- magnitude of how payment affects innovation. That's, as you know, a very, very hard number to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I think that because it's a hard number to know, and we want to sort of, you know, get support for the the Medicare for All piece, we've just ignored a lot of these calculations. But the current approach of believing that regulation and regulated prices are immune to these price forces this approach of believing that regulation is immune to these forces or can somehow be circumvented through even more regulation. Oh, let's just get the right Harvard professor to sit behind the dials and we can figure this out is actually not different from believing these forces to be small or zero. So it's a very sad state of affairs. Now there's also a very sad state of affairs. I think on the center, right? I think the very sad state of affairs on the center, right? Is, you know, an unwillingness to see the opportunity with the exchanges in Obamacare. So whatever the center right's opposition may be to, you know, some of the regulatory aspects of Obamacare, uh, I think the exchanges is certainly an idea. that's actually a center-right idea. It's not a center-left idea. So like, own the center-right, like think about how to breathe new life into the exchanges and in particular, Ways in which we can do the risk adjustment better. And that's going to be central, Jim, to my idea of allowing plans to compete based on the generosity of what they cover, the quality generosity of what they cover. Because here's what we don't want. You ask me, what will the critics say about my plan?
0: Yeah.
1: Well, a, a good critic would say, here's what would happen. They would say two things will happen. Thing one would be that there's a race to the bottom. A bunch of insurers will offer extremely skinny plans that offer essentially no coverage. A bunch of super healthy people will buy those plans and that will unravel the entire insurance market. That's a real fear. That's what would happen if these exchanges were completely unregulated. Another version of that is very healthy people will buy the skinny plans and when they get sick, during their open enrollment programs, they'll buy the super generous plan that gives them all the coverage that they want, right? That's also going to be a problem. But both of those problems are circumvented through better risk adjustment and through establishing minimum benefits. Obamacare did a terrible job of defining what those minimum benefits are. It introduces this concept of, you know, you have to cover everything that's essential. Well, everything's essential. A three Tesla machine is essential. A drug that sells for $15 million, but doesn't work might or, or generates two days of health is still medically essential because it generated two days of health. So Obamacare didn't really grapple with the fundamental thing that regulation needs to establish, which is how low can your offering be? in the health exchange market, you know? And so we need, and that's a, that's a conversation, that's a standard that requires trade-offs. The center-right could think about ways to define that. One way to define it, here's just a very simple way to define it mm-hmm. is to say, let the state Medicaid program define what Medicaid covers. And you can't offer a plan that is less generous than Medicaid. That would just be one way to do it, right? That would just be one way to do it. Um, but there's other ways to do it as well. I mean, you could say, uh, let's look at the, you know, let's look at everything that was available five years ago in healthcare, drugs, devices, hospital care. Let's figure out what it would take to insure someone with healthcare from five years ago today. That's the minimum plan, boom, that's it. There's many simple ways to do this. and We have not done any of that, but it is essential if we want a robust marketplace of competing plans to exist.
0: I want to end with a final question, and obviously, I want to talk about the uh, pandemic. What has what have we learned about the American healthcare system during this pandemic, and have and has it altered any of your views in any way? Has it reinforced uh, your views uh, about American healthcare?
1: Look, I think our response to the pandemic was a disaster, but I don't think that was, that is despite having probably, you know, the the healthcare system did really well over here. I think the leadership around it from outside of healthcare was incredibly disappointing uh, for me, but I think we've learned a couple of things. And if you say, what have we really, really learned? Um, One of them is, wouldn't it have been great if we had a much larger armamentarium of antiviral treatments and platforms for vaccines before this uh, pandemic showed up. Um, And, you know, I mean, yeah, the folks at Gilead had remdesivir, but they had it by chance. I mean, what if we had built some sort of an advanced purchase commitment where we said to these manufacturers, you know, Anytime there's a pandemic as as decided by the CDC or as decided by the WHO, if you can give us a vaccine with even 60% effectiveness within six months of the pandemic being declared, we'll give you $10 billion. Maybe we'll give them $20 billion. Maybe we'll just give them $50 billion. The risk of this development will be on the companies. And year to year, we won't have a pandemic. So in general, we won't be writing any checks at all. But in the chance we had a pandemic for a 60% effective vaccine, we would be willing to pay that, that manufacturer $10 billion. Some people will say, you're crazy. It might only have taken them, you know, $2 million to produce it. I don't really care. I just think that it is very hard to underpay for transformational antivirals and transformational vaccines. I mean, we know that the current pandemic the cost of the current pandemic to the US economy over the next 10 years is about $16 trillion. All right.
0: so, ha,
1: if we were paying these companies you know, an insurance policy, is this sort of, I, I think of paying them as an insurance policy. you know And, and this is actually even better than insurance because we're not having to pay. Uh, we're only having to pay when, if the pandemic actually happens. So I think what we've learned is that the current system of incentives is inadequate to really defend us against these future pandemics. And in a world that's shrinking a lot and in a world that's basically likely to face some real threats from climate change, we're likely to see more of these pandemics, right? We, we had SARS, we had MERS, we had Ebola. The whole reason we're calling this SARS-CoV-2 is because it was a SARS-CoV-1. Now there could be a SARS-CoV-3, there could be a SARS-CoV-4, and there's nothing in the history of viruses or in the microbiology of viruses that says SARS-CoV-3 will happen 100 years from now, right? SARS-CoV-3 could happen three months from now and you would need a brand new set of vaccines against that. So what I think we have not adequately done is to figure out what incentives were missing, you know, in, in last year at this time that we should really be changing, dramatically changing. Um, So that the next time a pandemic happens, we will be much more prepared for it. And once again, Jim, I will say, I really don't have a problem with the rest of the world free riding on American antivirals and American built vaccines. Because what I care about is the fact that this pandemic caused a $16 trillion hit to our economy in terms of Economic cost and lost lives. So, you know, if the rest, of the, the rest of the world also suffered, and if they benefit from my investment in saving, you know, fellow Americans and, and our economy, I don't really have a problem with it.
0: My guest today has been Amitabh Chandra. Amitabh, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Jim.